0: Today's sermon will come from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified.
1: Police officer pulled a driver aside, asked for his license and registration. And the driver said, officer, what's wrong? I didn't go through any red lights and I wasn't speeding. The officer said, no, you weren't, but I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady driving in the left lane. And I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off and how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge. Is that a crime, officer? The officer said, no. But when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on your car, I figured the car had to be stolen. <laughs> so often, our behavior undermines our belief. Our behavior is inconsistent with what we profess to believe. We, we believe the gospel and we, we may even confess it with our mouths, but oftentimes we deny it with our lives. This is where we find ourselves in Antioch, as Paul confronts Peter, about Peter living inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, we're going to get into the details of how Cephas or Peter's conduct was inconsistent, but it's important to note why Paul confronts Peter. And what we see as Paul confronts Peter with some very strong language. Look at verse 11. I I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That word opposed is a strong word. It means to, uh, uh, to, with, with force and with strength, confront. The reason that Paul does this is because it is so critically important that the gospel, specifically the implications of the gospel, are fleshed out in every dimension of life. It's the the principle that we learn here that is so important that we think about how the gospel affects every dimension of our life. It should affect how we think. It should affect how we feel, our emotions. It should affect how we relate, how we behave. It should affect how we speak, how we should work. And that those implications of the gospel should match up With the gospel itself, shortly after I came to Christ in grad school, I was home with my family for a a holiday. I think it it was either Thanksgiving or Christmas. And the entire family was gathered. My brother was there, my sister, my parents, and we had a great time. And, you know, I was new in Christ. I was rejoicing in my new salvation. I was rejoicing in the peace I had with God. Yet I wasn't too far removed from my old life before Christ. A time in which sarcasm, biting sarcasm would just spew from my mouth. And so we're home, and I I said something very biting. It was very sarcastic, and I'll never forget. This is over 20 years ago. And I will never forget my brother, who had come to Christ years before and was aware that I had just recently come to Christ, and he looked me in the eye with a level but a firm voice, And he said, Keith, your sarcasm doesn't suit you. Now, my brother, as adults, he has never confronted me. That's the one time he's confronted me. And I remember it. And what he was saying is, Keith, your sarcasm is not in step with the truth of the gospel. I hadn't yet worked out the implications of the gospel on my sarcastic tongue. And that's what we find here, is that Peter had inconsistencies in his life, even though he believed the gospel. And so it begs the question of what, what are the signs of living in step with the truth of the gospel? Now, before we get to the signs, we need to define the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? Because truth determines practice. Practice doesn't determine truth. Right, Truth determines practice. So what is, what is the truth of the gospel? After Paul confronts Peter for being inconsistent and telling him how he's being inconsistent, he then reminds him of the truth of the gospel in verse 16. Look at it. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, lots of repetition in that one verse, okay? The word justified is repeated three times. The phrase works of the law is repeated three times. The phrase faith or belief in Christ is repeated three times for emphasis. Now the word justified, that word means to be declared or accounted righteous. It's the same root word in Greek as righteous. To be justified or justification is that one-time act of God. It is not a process. It's that one-time act of God by which he forgives your sin and credits to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. Takes your sin and credits to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. Think about uh, being a, a million dollars in debt. If somebody pays off your debt, they get you back to zero. Imagine then they credit or another million dollars to your account. So now you're a million dollars in the positive. That's what happens. Christ takes your sin, and then credits to you his perfect righteousness. And this happens through faith. Simply believing what Jesus has done for you, it does not happen through the works of the law. Meaning you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough for it. That upon faith you are justified or declared righteous. It's a legal term. It's used in the court of law. It means to be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, to be cleared of all charges. It simply means to be innocent, right? Before God's bar of justice, right? To be declared innocent before God's bar of justice. And it's received by faith alone. Ephesians 2 tells us that our faith is even a gift. So you can't even take credit for your work of believing, That even faith is a gift, which means that justification is a complete free gift of God's grace that you can take no credit for, you can't even take credit for your faith because that's a gift from God. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, why does Paul repeat three times in verse 16 that a person can't be justified by works of the law? In other words, three times he says, you can't earn your justification. You can't earn it. He says that three times. Why? Because the typical Jewish attitude in the first century was that you could, that you could be good enough, that you could earn your way to being declared righteous before God. In fact, listen to this. This is an inscription or an epitaph on a first century Jewish tomb, right? And this will give you you a picture of the attitude that was circulating in that first century. Listen to this. Here lies Regina. She will live again. Return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and the pious, and that she has deserved to possess a home in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you, this your chaste life, this your love for people, this your observance of the law, your devotion to to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you, for all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. You hear the the attitude of we we can follow God's law, right, and earn our righteousness and be righteous in his sight. That was the attitude. And Paul is saying, no, you cannot make yourself right before God by what you do. You cannot. You can only be declared right with God by believing what Jesus has done for you. That's justification. Now, what are the implications of it? Because I would imagine for a number of you, as I'm explaining justification, your heart's nodding. You're saying, yes, I know that. I know I can't be justified by works. I'm justified by faith. I know that. Well, guess, and this is the danger. Peter knew that as well. Peter believed in justification by faith. In fact, at the beginning of chapter two, he had that meeting in Jerusalem with Barnabas and and James and John and Paul, and they came to the conclusion, right, that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to be saved or to belong to the church, that justification was by faith. Peter agreed, they all agreed. And then we find this situation in Antioch where Peter's actions were inconsistent with what he believed, and we're all inconsistent. That is the reality of life in a broken world is that we live inconsistent with what we believe. So what then are the signs of living in step with the truth of the gospel, right? We know what the truth of the gospel is. Now, what are the signs of living in step with that? First, honesty. Justification by faith produces honesty. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the situation in Antioch. Peter comes to Antioch and he enjoys table fellowship with the Gentiles. We read it in verse 12. He was eating with Gentiles. Now that was a big deal. Okay, because Jews were not permitted to eat with Gentiles because there were the Old Testament uh, ceremonial law, dietary laws, that they had to only they could eat certain things that had to be clean and not unclean, and the Gentiles ate things that were unclean. And so How could a Jew eat with a Gentile if they ate the wrong food, prepared it wrong, maybe offered it to the wrong gods? Well, God gave Peter the radical solution to this problem in Acts chapter 10. When he gave Peter a vision upon the the death and resurrection of Christ, things had changed. And here's the vision. Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. In other words, the sheet was full of animals that Jews were forbidden to eat. Verse 13, then a voice from heaven said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then verse 15, but the voice from heaven said, What God has made clean, do not call common. And what God was teaching Peter there, he was preparing him actually to take the gospel to a Roman, a Gentile named Cornelius. But he was also teaching Peter and freeing Peter to have table fellowship with Gentiles, to eat with them. And so what we find in Antioch is that Peter is enjoying this newfound freedom in the gospel that God has given him. He's eating with the Gentiles until a group of people show up. And it says it's a certain group from James. It's the circumcision party. It's what I've called the Judaizers. It's the ones that were demanding that Gentiles get circumcised to be saved and belong in the church. It was the ones that were demanding that a Gentile had to become a Jew before they could get saved. And the issue had been dealt with. That no, they didn't have to become Jewish to be saved. Why? Because justification by faith, the same faith that a Gentile held was the same faith that a Jew had. And by that faith, they were declared righteous. So Peter's enjoying this freedom. But then when these, this group comes, they, they were shocked, I'm sure, to see Peter eating with these uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. Absolutely shocked. And what does Peter do? In fear, he backs off. He pulls away. He stops eating with them. And look at how Paul describes this behavior in verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy, it shows up twice in that verse. It means to pretend. It means to play act. It's it's a word that was used in theater. It's like putting on a mask and pretending to be a different character okay, In, in, in a drama or in a play. It means to pretend. And that's what Peter was doing. He was pretending to be someone he was not. Listen, he did not withdraw from eating with the Gentiles out of principle. In fact, he withdrew against principle because Peter believed justification by faith. He believed the truth of the gospel. He believed that Gentiles were not second-class citizens, that there was a level playing field. He believed that. He withdrew out of what? Fear. He withdrew out of fear. His pretending was driven by fear. When I first came to Christ in 1997 at the University of Texas at Austin, I was there for about another year before God moved me out of Austin and brought me to Charlotte, North Carolina where I worked as a civil engineer. When I first got to Charlotte, I was a brand new, relatively new believer in Christ and I quickly got connected with a friend who worked for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. a Wonderful, wonderful organization. And My friend and the other staff on FCA got wind that I was fairly new in Christ and that I had played college football, that I played quarterback in college. And so they quickly asked me if I would share my testimony at different high schools, at different FCA huddles around town, to which I said, sure, I would love to. But for that year or so that I did that, I felt this tremendous pressure the pressure to maintain this image of an elite college athlete, of a successful college quarterback. And here's what that looked like. When I'd show up at a club and I'd share my testimony and maybe after if there was a Q&A session or I'd get the question, so did you start? Were you a starting quarterback in college? And I'd say, yes, I started my senior year but I'd withhold the information that I got benched after game three or four. And I'd withhold the information that for those first three or four games, I was a co-starter. And the other one is the one that ended up starting for the rest of the year. And then they'd say, they'd say Keith, how many touchdown passes did you throw? You know what I'd say? Ah, I don't remember. That's how humble I am. You know what the truth was? I threw about two in mop-up duty my junior year. And do you know how many I threw my senior year? Zero. You know why I wasn't honest? Because I was scared to death of losing their respect and being thought less of and maybe even being laughed at. It was fear that caused me to pretend, and yet I knew I was justified, declared righteous by faith and not by works. I knew I had the righteousness of Christ by faith, and yet the fear was so loud, the fear was so loud that I lived by the fear and not by the gospel, not by the truth of the gospel. And so I felt the need to have to patch up some sort of righteousness before these high schoolers to make myself feel worthy, to feel credible. And that was all driven by fear. Living in step with the truth of the gospel means being honest about your sin and failure. Being honest about your sin and failure. And you can because by faith, you have the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ so you don't have to patch together this righteousness, which which what that means is you start to pretend. And you pretend to be somebody you're not. That's hypocrisy. And I will just tell you that hypocrisy is a contagious disease. It has a pack mentality to it. Say, what's that mean? How's it work? Well, let me give you the example in your community group. Your community group leader asked a probing heart question. They ask a question that gets a little bit personal, and there's crickets in the room. There's absolute, complete silence. And then after awkward silence, somebody finally breaks the silence. And they give a very general, super-veiled, non-transparent answer. And then what happens after that? Everybody follows suit. And everybody gives a very general, super veiled, non-transparent answer. That that's how hypocrisy works. It's contagious. It's contagious as it works its way through a group and through a community. And in that example, in, in community group, the chances are probably most people believe they're justified by faith. Got the righteousness of Christ. By faith, not by works. But you know why we're not transparent? You know why we pretend? You know why we hide? Because deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we're scared to death of being found out, of somebody thinking less of me if I share that. If I really, if I share that, will they think less of me? Will I subtly be kind of shunned? Will I become that person and excluded? When fear speaks louder than the gospel, you will live in step with your fear and not in step with the gospel. What are the signs of living in step with the truth of the gospel? First, honesty. Second, humility. Humility. Look at what Paul says to Peter in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Peter had put aside his cultural preferences. He had put aside his Jewish customs and practices to sit down and eat with Gentiles. Why did he do that? Because he knew that he was justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. He was freed from that. He was declared righteous by faith alone. And so he didn't believe Gentiles were second-class citizens. He didn't believe they were, they were less. He didn't believe Jews were better, Gentiles were less. He actually believed that they were, they were equal. And yet by his conduct of pulling away and not eating with them, he was communicating by his actions that they were second-class citizens. And the Gentiles were beginning to, by that movement, the Gentiles were beginning to think, wow, well, I guess we really do have to become Jewish to be saved. We actually do have to do these ceremonial works of the law that were fulfilled by Christ to be saved. And so his actions were inconsistent. Look at his argument in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You know what he's saying there? Paul's saying, listen, if justification was by works of the law, by by, uh, obeying God's commands, then theoretically the Jews have an advantage. Theoretically, then the Jews are privileged and the Gentiles are not. But verse 16, he says, but no, a person is not justified, declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying the playing field is absolutely level between Jew and Gentile. There's not one that's privileged, one that's not privileged. When righteousness comes from self and not Christ, It leads to what we would call self-righteousness, which creates pride, which creates this this need to elevate yourself in righteousness above someone else's righteousness. And that leads to exclusion. It leads to judgment. I hope you see here that if if justification, being declared righteous, is by what you do, then you've arrived at self-righteousness, which leads to pride and leaves you having to elevate yourself over others. And that happens in a number of ways. Ask yourself this question. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility, personal worth, personal acceptance, personal standing? What do you count on? Let me give you an example or a few examples of sources of righteousness by which you could try to bolster your credibility over others. Number one, job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me unlike those lazy people I work with. Family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Now, I've just named a few sources of righteousness that would be self-righteousness that we use to subtly elevate ourselves over others. And what I want you to see is that that becomes a means of exclusion. It's exactly what was happening in Antioch with Peter and those that drew away with him. It becomes a means of exclusion, a means of pride, a means of elevating ourselves above others. The gospel produces a deep humility because it delivers a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that you cannot earn and therefore claim credit for and become prideful over. The gospel produces a transparent honesty because it delivers a righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ. It's not your own. And so you don't have to hide and try to protect this righteousness that you're building up. You have the righteousness of Christ. Max Lucado, well-known pastor and author, tells about the story of his journey with alcohol. He says he fell in love with beer as a high schooler because he drank way too much of it with his high school friends. But he also knew about his family and his family had a history of alcoholism and it was in his ancestry, and so it scared him. At the age of 21, therefore, he he swore it off. But years later, and he doesn't remember exactly what caused it, but years later, uh, his cravings were resurrected, and he found himself, instead of reaching for a can of soda, reaching for a can of beer. And it started off once in a while. Then it became once a week. Then it became once a day. But he knew he had to do it in hiding. He couldn't do it in his house, lest his daughters and his wife, family, would think less of him. He couldn't do it out in public for obvious reasons. He's a pastor. Somebody would see him. So what did that leave? Left him drinking beer out of a brown paper bag in convenience store parking lots in his car. And he said he was enjoying that. He enjoyed his daily purchase doesn't remember what resurrected the cravings, but he says he does remember what stunted them. And that was, he was on his way to a men's retreat, to speak at a men's retreat. And he stopped by for his daily purchase. And he got his beer and he put it in a brown paper bag and he shuffled out to his car and he sat in his car and was about to drink it. And he was just overcome with the fact that he had become the very person that he, he hated or he would even speak against, the hypocrite. Right, the one that, lives not like they talk, right? He became very convicted of it. How did his hypocrisy end? Well, he said right there, he, he threw the beer out. In his car, he, he began to pray. And, and what he said was what disgusted him most. What was so nauseating in his heart was not the beer as much as it was the cover-up. It was the pretending that he was in the midst of. And so he scheduled a meeting with his elders and he confessed it to his elders and his elders responded by saying, Max, you're forgiven. God loves you. That sin is covered. And then he announced it to his congregation at a midweek gathering. And as he announced it, they responded with forgiveness as well. But he said what happened is that it started a, an hour-long confession in that congregation. And what he said is the honesty right was not weakness but it actually strengthened the church it didn't weaken the church it strengthened it because people came out of hiding they came out of pretending with their sin and they openly confessed it a community that is living in step with the gospel is an honest and a humble community because it wholeheartedly believes that it possesses a righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ that cannot be earned and that cannot be taken away. Let's pray. Father, we all confess our hypocrisy. We all confess our inconsistency with the truth of what we believe, the truth of the gospel. We confess our pretending. We confess our hiding. And even some of us right now are convicted about an area of life where we're hiding. And there's great fear that if we were to confess it, would we ever be looked at the same? Would we ever be accepted? Would we ever be loved, respected like we are now. Oh, Father, would you break through the lies and would you make us a community that is honest and make us a community that's humble and make us a community that that so deeply at a heart level believes the truth of the gospel, that we are justified, declared righteous, credited with the righteousness of Christ by faith by believing what he's done for us, that it would produce honesty, that it would produce a a radical humility, that we would find the freedom of taking the mask off and not having to live a duplicitous life depending on the situation we're in. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, Would you remove our inconsistencies? Would you bring us out of hiding? Would you bring us to a place of honesty in the, in the people, with the people we love? And Father, as we receive and hear confessions, honest confessions, would we be a people that are quick to extend grace and forgiveness and love and quell those very fears that keep us in hiding? Oh, make us that church. Father, as we close in worship, we sing to you as inconsistent people that are confessing our inconsistency to once again be united functionally to you, Jesus, and be reminded of the righteousness that we have. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.